this is where the attacking force, the government force, fought at the creek. In my family, it was always the blokes because Peter Lawler, being my great-great-grandfather, it was always the sort of fellows fighting. But I used to get away with murder at school at the convent because there were some Irish nuns there and if I'd go, or something, if I was told off, the Irish nun would say to another one, oh, well, she's got the spirit of Peter Lawler in her and they'd sort of smile thinly at me. So there was a sense of pride in Peter Lawler and that he stood for something and always it was mentioned by my grandmother that he refused a knighthood. That was one of the main things we knew about him, that he had refused a knighthood and this was considered very cool. So now we're going to proceed up to Eureka Street and we will go along what was the south side of the stockade. Why did you come in the walk? Oh well, I think it's good uh, Ballarat spirit actually. Um, why two boys came here last year. So. What happened at Eureka? Well, they fought because the miners had to pay a licence and they didn't want to pay it, so they all burnt it, and then they had a big battle. And what happened at the battle? 41 people were killed, and five soldiers were killed, and 163 were taken into jail. Look, it's a great honour to be connected, as I am, with one of the truly great Australians, and that's the way that I see Peter Lawler. He lost his arm during the uh, storming of the, the stockade. He was prepared to die for what he believed in. 3am on a cold December morning in Ballarat, Victoria, and a strange procession winds its way through the darkness. Every year, several hundred people walk the Eureka Trail to commemorate what happened here on the 3rd of December, 1854. Mark Twain called it the finest thing in Australian history, and Prime Minister Ben Chifley described it as the first real affirmation of our determination to be the master of our own political destiny. Many still see Eureka as the birthplace of Australian democracy. Others dismiss it as a tax whinge, an outburst by a rabble of unruly gold seekers. But a rabble does not normally design its own flag as the miners did, choosing the Southern Cross as their emblem. Its design of five white stars on a blue background has been incorporated into the official Australian flag but the Eureka flag is still widely used as a flag of protest. The miners' political wing, the Ballarat Reform League, attracted 10,000 people to one meeting, the biggest political rally in Australia to that time. Influenced by English chartists, Irish nationalists, European and New World movements, the group produced a charter calling for more equitable laws which could still form the basis of a constitution for a modern Australian republic. Their campaign, however, came to a head in a brief and bloody battle that Sunday morning at what came to be known as the Eureka Stockade. No one knows for sure how many died, some 30 men, most of them miners and most of them Irish. When I went to the Ballarat Cemetery and looked at the old headstone to those killed at Eureka, they're just Irish name after Irish name after Irish name. And when I looked at how the potency of Eureka as a symbol, and realised that it happened in an Irish quarter of the goldfields. The leaders were all Irish. They produced the flag, they wrote the document, the Declaration of Independence, and they led it, and they were killed in the greatest numbers. And Australia had 
one man, one vote, the right to paid parliamentarians, the right to a short period of parliament, up to 50 years before England. And yes, they would have come, but the Irish said, enough is enough. They had suffered centuries of oppression in England by the English in their own country, came here, discovered again and said, that's it. We didn't come to halfway across the bloody universe to have it happen again. Paul Murphy's great-great-grandfather, Michael Canney, from County Clare in Ireland, fought and was wounded at the Eureka Stockade. Fifty years after the event, he wrote about his experiences. My name is Michael Canney. My brother Patrick, who was now a farmer in Bongaree, and I were in the stockade fight. When the fight began, Teddy Moore, John Hines, my brother and I... Were it was the holy grail was on its to actually find a document that was, was my great-great-grandfather's own words about the battle. We could see the redcoats blazing away at us. I had my own rifle and fired several shots. I saw Lawler stagger and drop his gun. In 1988, Paul Murphy was amazed to discover that Eureka was not included in the Bicentennial commemorations. In order to keep alive its memory, he founded a group called Eureka's Children, comprised of descendants of those involved in the affair. The group now has over a thousand names on its database. Ten years on, when I wrote a piece on Eureka for a national newspaper at the time of the Republic referendum, I discovered the events still touch a nerve. My depiction of the bayoneting of wounded men and bystanders was censored and the tone of the article changed, without consultation, to justify the authorities' actions. The miners' leader, Peter Lawler, was captioned a rabble-rouser turned social climber, a complete distortion of what I'd written. This unprecedented intervention inflamed my own passions about Eureka. It seems to divide Australians along the old fault line of pro- and anti-authority, and no prizes for guessing where the Irish, me included, line up. But how significant were the Irish at Eureka? There were 15 or 16 nationalities in the stockade, but even the prominent Italian digger, Raffaello Carboni, wrote of the Irish influence. So was it a noble battle against injustice, informed by Ireland's long history of colonial oppression? Or were the miners just disgruntled opportunists? Rebels or riffraff? That's what this programme explores through the eyes of ten descendants of those who were there and locals still intrigued by the affair. Lawler has mounted a stump on the hill, removed his hat and his knee. His right hand is raised towards the flag. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and our liberties. 90,000 people a year visit Blood on the Southern Cross at the Sovereign Hill theme park outside Ballarat. But what was the real Peter Lawler like? At the top of the programme we heard from his great-great-granddaughter, Christine Gillespie, and great-great-grandson, also called Peter Lawler. But the story starts in Tinnakill, County Leash, slap-bang in the middle of Ireland, where the Lawlers stubbornly resisted British attempts to dispossess them of their land. The Lawlers, they were driven away to Kerry by the British government. They were driven out of Leash seven times and they came back. There was, Lawlers, like, had a, a team, no surrender. They wouldn't give in. So they came back. Every time they were driven back. So eventually they settled down and in Leash and uh, Tenekill here was one of the places they settled in. Richard Lawler Fitzpatrick is the great-grandson of Peter Lawler's brother Richard. Richard went to Australia with Peter, 
but returned home to help their ailing father. Politics ran in the family. Their father, known as Honest Pat, was the local member, while Peter's older brother, James Finton Lawler, was jailed for his radical nationalist activities. In an interesting parallel with the Eureka miners' protest against what they considered an unfair licence fee, Peter's grandfather, Pat Lawler, also took a stand against an unjust tax, the tithe, or 10% impost, collected by the Church of England from Catholic landowners in Ireland. He was the first man in Ireland, I think, to refuse to pay this levy to the British Empire. And uh, there was 20 sheep seized on him in lieu of the tax. He got in his sheep before the sheriff came and he branded them with the word tithe. And the sheriff came anyhow and he took the sheep and he took them to Dublin. There was no auction. No one would buy them. And then they were transported over to Liverpool. And uh, Pat Lauder had a priest and acquaintance over there and he organised that there was going to be no sale. And there was no transport like for bringing sheep that to walk. So they were getting weak and hungry. And the story goes that the last of the sheep died on the road to Manchester. And uh, Pat Lawler lost his sheep, but won the battle. Peter Lawler's grandfather owned a thousand acres, a huge holding for 18th century Irish Catholics. But as two generations sold off land to cover their parliamentary expenses, the property diminished, and by Peter's day it wasn't big enough to provide for him and his ten siblings. Peter had no politics in Ireland now. He, he emigrated to Australia, I think, at about 27 years of age, around 1852. And uh, himself and Richard went. And uh, they were both engineers. And they were laying down railways and that. And then Richard uh, was called home, like, by the father. And Peter went to this gold mining. He gave up the railway thing and he went to the gold mines. When first I left old Ireland's shore, the yards that we were told, our folk in far Australia could pick up lots of gold. Grandfather, and he had something to do with the design of the Eureka flag. Well, the Eureka flag didn't mean a thing to me or anything else. I was only about 10, 12 or 13, I suppose. I'd never forgotten that, though. Leo Howard's grandfather was arrested at Eureka. His family are proud of their Irish heritage and still vigorously debate political and cultural issues. What came through to you, though, as you got a little bit older, about what Eureka was about and what your grandfather's well, role was? It was to seek justice from the oppression that was being forced on them, uh, where they were there seeking to make a fine in gold and they're constantly bombarded with increased taxes on their miners' rights. Sometimes they couldn't meet that, and they'd have a wife and family in the tents and got to the stage where they could take it no more. With the result, they rebelled. But from there on, there's always been a great memory of Peter Lawler, who stood at Eureka with his men, in the defiance of oppression, looking for justice. Justice is the most important thing, and to achieve that is, the, is what we should always aim for, no matter where we are in life. The Irish wouldn't take that sort of thing. They'd been oppressed enough in Ireland. They'd had their share of it there, and they weren't going to stand for it again, and that's what it passed down. 
in those days, if you're a miner, you were a miner, a very minor person. <laughs> you didn't, you didn't, you didn't equate to very much at all in life. Oh no, digging! It's the only job you start at the top digging holes, you know. <laughs> Although the Howards can laugh about it, injustice to them is not just about another time or place. Strange as it may seem today, when Irish-Australian Catholics like Paul Keating and Sir William Dean have occupied the highest office in the land, Irish Catholics were, until the 1960s, a maligned and discriminated against minority in Australia. Leo Howard worked in a factory for 47 years to feed and educate his seven children, but even getting that job in Warrnambool in the 40s was difficult. If you wanted the job then, there was a sign quite often in the paper you would see, Catholics need not apply. Daniel came from a distant land, driven from his native... Leo's son, Shane Howard, a well-known musician, has written many songs exploring injustice and oppression, including this one about his great-grandfather. He's currently writing a play about Eureka. From Eureka on, Australia is the great democratic and egalitarian kind of notion in, in the world. The fact that those Irish had come out of the famine, what more did they have to lose? The rich may have their table set, but the poor will have their day. They saw, I suppose, what the outcome of living in subservience was. The final outcome of this total subjugation, humiliation, to defeat, death, with the famine. And from that point onwards, you go, well, I'd rather fight and die than just take it. Shane Howard lives in a very Irish part of Western Victoria, aptly named Killarney. It's full of spuds and onion farms owned by descendants of those Irish who did well out of the gold mining days. Across a field from Shane's house lives Joan Williams, another Eureka child with a familiar Irish story. My great-grandfather Patrick Sheedy fought at Eureka and no doubt for what he believed in because it's been the story of his whole life. He was transported from Ireland for shooting at policemen in, uh, at the time of the uh, famine and I no doubt that they were probably being evicted or something of that nature because they were described as political prisoners. And he was transported to Tasmania, but after about four years he escaped from there. And next thing he turned up at Eureka. And even though we knew nothing about troubles in Ireland when we were growing up, or anything of that nature, it still all came through us. The fear of police, the hate of authority, the British particularly. But we were never told why, it was just sort of bred in us. At a meeting held in Bakery Hill in the presence of about 10,000 men on Saturday, November 11th, 1854, the following were adopted as the principles and objects of the Ballarat Reform League. That it is the inalienable right of every citizen to have a voice in making the laws he is called upon to obey. That taxation without representation is tyranny. That being as the people have been hitherto unrepresented in the Legislative Council of the Colony of Victoria, they have been tyrannised over. And it becomes their duty as well as interest to resist. The Ballarat Reform League was formed to advocate, I guess, for the miners to have their rights recognised. 
It is the object of the League to place the power in the hands of responsible representatives of the people. And in the Charter they wanted things like um, representation in Parliament and they were, they were particularly oppressed or offended by the licence hunts. Hotham kept increasing the cost so that even if they did find gold, and only few of them found gold, they, they had to pay most of it to the government. The government really didn't want the miners. They saw them as riffraff. Political changes contemplated by the Reform League. One, full and fair representation. Two, manhood suffrage. Three, no property qualification of members for the Legislative Council. Four, payment of members. Five, short duration of Parliament. I am the great-great-granddaughter of Timothy and Anastasia Hayes. Timothy was the chairman of the Reform League and uh, Anastasia came out here with Timothy. They had five children when they arrived and then she spent her time on the goldfields and I think it must have been extremely hard for her. She was very well educated. She could speak Greek and Latin and she also could draw. But she also did teach on the goldfield, so she set up some small school for the miners' children. She certainly was philosophically in support of the diggers. She clearly could sew too, although we don't know how well, but she sewed part of the flag. Timothy Hayes, then, who's Anastasia's husband, you say you don't know much about him, but what kind of a person do you think he might have been? Look, I, I have good feelings about Timothy. He was rotund. He was a big man. I mean, he must have been over six feet, and he was round and bearded, and he was very jovial. He wrote poetry. One of his poems is recorded somewhere, um, and I think he was probably fairly intellectual. I don't think he was a warrior. He didn't actually get involved in the battle. But it must have been Timothy that called the monster meeting because he was chair of the league. Timothy Hayes has dedicated a short poem to the diggers of Ballarat. On to the field, our doom is sealed. To conquer or be slaves. The sun shall see our country free or sat upon our graves. So what do you think drove them to come out here? Well, I think it was probably persecution. It may well have been seeking for riches, but I, I don't believe that. I think living in Ireland at the time was extremely difficult and uh, people wanted to escape British rule. And I think that was one of the factors that influenced the League itself, to actually stick up for themselves and to not let the British oppress them once more. So I think they really felt, we're not going to let it happen again. We've escaped it and that's it. The flag seems to be so central to the Eureka story that it elevates it above the ordinary. Just the very fact that people felt so impassioned as to want to have a flag, I think, says something about the miners. I have to say that the Eureka flag brings tears to my eyes. I feel for the people that were involved in making it. I look at it and I think Anastasia was there and that's partly her petticoat and her stitches. Somewhere, one of the stars. I don't know which one. And then it was just spat on by the soldiers and desecrated. And it really makes me feel very emotional. It, it does so much. Part of it is the Southern Cross, the blue sky and the stars. And I think that was part of being a new world. And, and they wanted a new world that was 
worth living in, it is a very beautiful flag. And as Raffaello Carboni described it, exceedingly chaste and natural. Exactly. He did it much better than me. Yes, I would agree with that. that that's what it is. It's, it's a pure. And when Anastasia was sewing it, knowing that some kind of confrontation was imminent, what do you think she might have been thinking? I mean, there she was with five children. The miners couldn't have expected to win against armed forces. Uh, you wonder how she found the time with five children to do anything. Exactly. I see her as very feisty and brave. I think Anastasia would have liked to have been in the battle herself. She was a Joan of Arc, really. She was strong. And when Timothy was arrested, she went up to him and said, had I been a man, I would have not let myself be arrested. And I believe that. I think she would have fought back. I mean, she would have died first. But I don't think she thought the battle would be such a massacre. And I wonder what they thought. Did they know they were putting their lives on the line here? I don't know. I wish I knew. My dear Alicia, the authorities have gone so far as to have had the diggers fired upon this morning, who, in self-defence, have taken up arms and are resolved to use them. In fact, my dear, to confess the truth, I am one amongst them. You must not be unhappy on this account. I would be unworthy of being called a man. I would be unworthy of myself. And, above all, I would be unworthy of you and your love, were I base enough to desert my companions in danger. Should I fall, I beseech you by your love for me, that love which has increased in proportion to my misfortunes, to shed but a single tear on the grave of one who has died in the cause of honour and liberty and then forget me until we meet in heaven. Peter Lawler, dated at Ballarat, November 30th, 1854. He seemed to have been an excellent speaker in his beautiful letter to my great-great-grandmother Alicia Dunn about how he was about to really get in deep into the deep end. So yes, Peter Lawler does seem to have been a man of principle who of course as we discovered from his life later on, was no radical at all and was really very conservative. But I think he was very courageous and he was a man of the moment and got up there on the day and showed a lot of courage and had convictions about people not being stamped on and um, walked all over. Do you know what Eureka's about? Um, well, the war against the miners... And who won? The troops. And do you think it was a fair battle? No. No. Because the troopers had weapons. They shouldn't have attacked them. They should have just sorted it out by taking it to court firstly or something. The first commemorative walk in Ballarat followed the route the troopers took to attack the stockade, an approach many of the miners' descendants found offensive. So in 2001, the Diggers' Walk was introduced. It traces the route the miners took, from the fateful meeting at Bakery Hill on November the 30th, where they swore the first ever oath to a non-British flag on Australian soil, to the final showdown at the stockade. Today, Professor John Maloney, author, historian and grandson of a miner present at the affray, will lead the gathering in repeating that oath. 
Raphael Carboni described very briefly and very simply what happened at Bakery Hill on that afternoon. I looked around me. I saw brave and honest men who had come thousands of miles to labour for independence. The grievances under which we had long suffered and the brutal attack of that day flashed across my mind. And with the burning feelings of an injured man, I mounted the stump and proclaimed liberty. There were about 500 diggers there. I then called on the volunteers to kneel down. And uh, Peter Lawler knelt on one knee. And with heads uncovered and hands raised to heaven. And held his hand up to the cross, to the southern cross, and we saw the following oath. Till at Vigory Hill, when the world stood still and Lawler rallied the men to be free. They raised a cry under a southern cross. Die for liberty, the wind, sing a rebel song. As others did before us, we'll raise a rebel flag. Join in a rebel force. We swear, we swear by, by the southern, southern cross to stand truly by each other, other and, fight and fight to defend, defend our rights and liberties. liberties. What drives a man to take up arms and risk both life? What rallies folks together to fight and not give in? We suffered in the old world the injustice and the greed. No more cried the Eureka men. We want equality. Right. You've arrived. The water of the stockade was 50 metres from where you're standing up that gully. And the stockade was built by materials which were on the site. Uh, it wasn't very strong. After they'd captured the stockade, they only had to cut the rope and the whole thing collapsed. The government had laid great stress on the erection of this enclosure and have dignified it with the titles of stockade, barricade, fortified entrenchment and camp. It may suit their policy to give it these titles, but in plain truth it was nothing more than an enclosure to keep our own men together and was never erected with an eye to military defence. To arms! To arms! About three o'clock on Sunday morning, the alarm was given that the enemy was advancing. Almost immediately, the military poured in one or two volleys of musketry which was a plain intimation that we must sell our lives as dearly as we could. There were about 70 men possessing guns, 20 with pikes and 30 with pistols, but many of those men with firearms had no more than one or two rounds of ammunition. Notwithstanding all the deficiencies, I cannot speak too highly of the conduct of the men present. Their coolness and bravery were admirable. My name is Michael Canney. I had my own rifle and fired several shots. Then my brother was hit by a bullet which splintered his shin bone and he was stretched out. I saw Lawler stagger and drop his gun. About ten minutes after the beginning of the fight, and while standing upon the top of a hole, calling upon the pikemen to come forward, I received a musket ball, together with two other smaller bullets, in the left shoulder, 
and from the loss of blood, I was rendered incapable of further action. I had my rifle ready for another shot when a bullet pierced my right arm. It went in the arm at its side and pierced the breastbone. It didn't hurt, but the blood spurted out and frightened me. I threw the rifle down and went over the stockade like a deer. On the approach of night, I returned to the diggings and through the kindness of a friend procured the assistance of surgeons who next day amputated my arm. In the attack, or rather after the surrender of the insurgents, we lost in killed 14 men and in wounded 20 men, of whom 8 have since died. I attached the names of those killed and wounded so far as I could learn. The unusual proportion of the killed to the wounded is owing to the butchery by the military and troopers after the surrender. Killed John Hines, County Clare, Ireland Patrick Gittins, Kilkenny, Ireland Edward Thonan, Lemonade Man, Prussia Edward Quinn, County Cavan, Ireland Samuel Green, England. Brought it home to me that, that this dirty, rotten deed was done in the middle of the night on uh, miners who were basically standing up for their rights. It's, it's a painful to think of it that way, that, that, that there were elements in our society who had scant regard for human life. William Quinlan, Goldburn, New South Wales. 13 and 14, names unknown. One was usually known on Eureka as Happy Jack. Wounded and since dead. Lieutenant Ross, Canada. Thaddeus Moore, County Clare, Ireland. This is our first time that we've actually been buried. And your ancestor, Patrick Carroll, he's my great-great-great-uncle. He took Peter Lawler in his dray through all the bush, uh, hiding from the troopers, to Geelong. Uh, and he was very wounded, too, Peter Lawler, at that time. Wounded and since recovered, Peter Lawler, Queen's County, Ireland. Patrick Hannafin, County Kerry, Ireland. And what have you felt along the walk today? Inspiring. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Yes, but yes. you could feel it coming yes. back in history. Very proud of it all. Yes. Frank Simmons, England. James Warner, County Cork, Ireland. Luke Sheehan, County Galway, Ireland. Michael Morrison, County Galway, Ireland. Michael Hanley, County Tipperary, Ireland. Dennis Dynan, County Clare, Ireland. There's 20 pikemen inside the stockade, last line of defence, Lawler has called them forward just as he's shot and these pikemen go in armed only with pikes and take on 100, 150 British soldiers, red coats, and they are wiped out pretty, pretty well to a man. And this dog has gone with his master into battle. The master has 15 bullet and bonnet wounds in his body and the dog howls to say, you have murdered these men, and he continues that howl all through the morning until the bodies are collected uh, in uh, carts sent down from the government camp. He jumped into the death cart with his master and made the final journey with him to his grave. We don't know who the master's name was. More than likely he was Irish. Uh, he lay with a pike beside him and 
there's a statue to be put in place uh, this Eureka Sunday to be unveiled by Irish Ambassador Richard O'Brien. It's a memorial to the miners in the figure of a dog with a pike. In the vanguard at Eureka were the Tipperary boys. Many of them, and indeed many others, carry their pikes, fashioned by a German blacksmith. Pikes, those traditional instruments of rural Irish insurrections which, as one commentator has speculated, were in all likelihood used out of deference to an antique sentiment. Seen in its Irish context, Eureka was, in a special sense, a reenactment of the Great Rebellion of the United Irishmen of 1798, seen by many to be just as necessary, just as inevitable, filled with the same poignant mixture of the adventurous, of the glorious, and of the tragic. But because of what happened here, where indeed so much pain was inflicted and where much blood was spilt, rights were established and the tide of history was changed. With your pike upon your shoulder at the rising of the moon. It is also beyond dispute that what happened here was the forging of the spirit, perhaps for the first time, of a determined and dedicated multicultural Australian. All along that singing river. Fifteen different nationalities were represented at the stockade, and they are represented in this memorial by 15 stakes pointing to the stars, pointing, reaching out above the head of the pikeman's dog. High above their shining weapons flew their own beloved green. Death to every forward traitor. I trust it will be evident that neither anarchy, bloodshed nor plunder were the objects of those engaged in the late outbreak. Stern necessity alone forced us to do it. I have the honour to remain fellow colonists, Peter Lawler. And our army boys for freedom tis the rising of the moon. Gentlemen, Richard Ireland, counsel for the defence of Timothy Hayes. Gentlemen, in order to vindicate the law, the law was violated. I ask you now, gentlemen... Great-grandfather, Richard Davis Ireland, was involved as a young islander in 1848 in Dublin. He was a barrister and then came to Australia during 1852, arrived on the 1st of January 1853, and he established himself in Melbourne, and then he was involved in the defence of the stockaders themselves, free of charge. Show me a design to take the camp even much less to attack the throne. Do you think they would have ever marched out to attack the military and troops? Never. The defence case in all the cases was that this affair in Ballarat was an affray or a riot and not a treasonal rebellion, and that was the line they took. So driftless, motiveless and objectless a conspiracy I've never heard of in all my life. These men were hunted on the Thursday. They armed themselves and swore to defend themselves on Friday. And then on the Saturday, they retreated with their wives and young children behind this little barricade. And there they stood, determined to die, each nobly defending the other. And from that, you are to infer that these men were to march out and take this colony into their own hands, depose the government and erect we know not what. 
I do not believe that they ever had an ulterior motive beyond the resistance of the payment of the licence fee. It's an interesting precedent. The cream of the Dublin Bar gave their services free to defend the 1848 Young Islanders, whether they were sympathetic to the Young Island cause or not, but because I think they were, in the sense of the word in those days, liberals, because they were children of the Enlightenment and they believed in the rule of law and not the oppression of governments. So I think it stems straight from the Irish precedent. His defence is not very gallant. They didn't actually use a defence of fighting for democracy. They just used the defence of saying, look, these were just men who wanted to improve their situation, their rights, and they were entitled to do that. But why they all got off so easily was because the whole of the Melbourne population came out in support of them. Because some people do say that the situation at Eureka is overstated and that it wasn't about these lofty notions of democracy. It was purely about these little mini-capitalists trying to make money and not wanting to have to uh, lose some of their money to the government. What do you say to that? I quite reject that. that. I mean, that is just not right. They were oppressed. They were shot at. The, the licence fees were put up all the time. I mean, they were not treated reasonably, and they stood up against it. So they, they had the population with them. But, they, no, I don't, I don't think they were fly-by-night capitalists. I mean, some may be, have been. You can't generalise. But I think this group, the Reform League, genuinely were looking to protect miners' rights and were fighting for democracy in Australia in the long term. If democracy means Chartism, Communism or Republicanism, then I am not and never will be a Democrat. If democracy means opposition to a tyrannical people or to a tyrannical government, then I have ever been, I still am, and will ever remain a Democrat. Peter Lawler, 1856. He's a man that is a real mystery to me in the way he acted after Eureka because he looked so good on the day and he looked so good... um, in actually stepping into the breach when there was a real gap in leadership and being the one to keep everybody together and have that sort of charismatic leadership, but then it seemed to fall apart after. And he actually voted against universal manhood suffrage and wasn't in favour of that, and no-one's terribly sure why, but there were the diggers sending him off to be their representative and he went for property Uh, as a requirement for voting, which I really can't quite understand. It would appear that he betrayed the wishes of the people who elected him. Mm. Is that fair? It's a tricky one. I see Peter Lawler as a a real individualist. Well, he certainly wasn't a Republican, but he saw himself as a Democrat, and his definition of that was someone who fights against injustice. While there is injustice, there can be no democracy. And I think he was consistent in that even though he didn't see universal manhood suffrage as part of that, which I don't understand. He did come from a uh, middle-class background, and uh, and that probably explains why he had concerns about opening up the vote to everyone. He he wanted uh, certain qualifications imposed, but they were less stringent than the ones that uh, existed at the time. And I think his concern at the time was that that democracy is fine, but it had to be brought about by people who were responsible. 
So he was very much a product of his time, he was a product of his uh, family upbringing. He had a, a strong belief in the parliamentary process. He was driven by a desire or a belief in, in fairness and equity. And, uh, and as he said in his own words, he was opposed to tyranny. And he wouldn't have been a party to a, a tyrannical uh, a government. I wouldn't know him personally, but naturally, but like he wasn't a fighting man. He wouldn't be into fighting like all the time. Like whatever he'd say, he'd say if I think he'd be right, and he'd stand over that then, like, and he'd be fairly fair that way. Some people have tried to describe him then as trying to advance himself, and yet he refused a knighthood. That's right. Yeah, why, well, would he, why would he have done that? Well, you see, he was an Irishman, and uh, any true, real Irishman, I suppose, wouldn't, well, at that particular time, anyhow, they wouldn't accept a knighthood from the British government. What does it mean to you here? How do you feel about oh, the Lawler involvement? <clears throat> I'd be proud, like, of what Peter Lawler did in Australia, and... We hope, like, at some stage in the near future to have the house restored as a monument to the Lawlers of Tenekill. How long is it since anybody's lived in it? Uh, I was the last person to live in it, and that was in 1958. This plaque uh, says, Here lived Honest Pat Lawler, MP, anti-tide leader. James Finton Lawler, Young Ireland leader and Peter Lawler, MP of Eureka Stockade fame. And if I can just say to you as well that this door here that we're looking at, that is the original door of the, of the house as far as we know. I can't decide whether it was um, something terribly deeply part of myself or whether it was what we might now call Irish, you know, nonsense nostalgia, but I was deeply affected by seeing this old house uh, with the door in the middle, a sort of Georgian-looking flat-faced house and trees growing through the windows and jack doors having nests in the ragged-looking chimney and the old house was falling down and just crumbling away to nothing. Cousin Richard, whose third cousin once removed or something mysterious like that, I was very anxious about it. I took him a Eureka flag and um, I did feel a certain kinship with him after all. He took me around and... Uh, he did say to me, if things had been different, Christine, maybe you'd be living here, which I thought was a nice touch. So there was that tension between the people who stayed behind and the people who left, who really came out better, maybe. To what extent have we lost our heritage or whatever, being emigrants, and to what extent are they stuck in the old stuff while we've moved on to the thrilling new lands? <laughs> 